let's start with, yeah, question with three thumbs up. How do we use our gifts and work hard without basing our identity on what we do or achieve? Thank you. Yeah, how do we use our gifts without them becoming a source for our identity? Look, one of the real challenges we have as human beings is because we are made to worship. Um, worship, the old English word for that, worth-ship, what we find ultimate worth or value in. Um, that is what it means to worship. So don't think of it as a peculiarly religious activity, but it's actually something we all do. Um, we all seek to find ultimate value, ultimate meaning in something or in a number of things. And one of the challenges is when you're particularly gifted at something is not to locate your value in that, not to end up worshiping it. Um, and arguably, the more gifted you are, the more, um, the more that you might fall into that trap. But I think you're bound to fall into that trap if you are not worshipping the one thing or the one person that we are really made for a relationship with. And that's what I was trying to suggest in the talk. Jesus is saying, you know, knowing your Father in heaven, worshipping him, finding ultimate value in him because he is of ultimate value, fills your heart up and then enables you to then keep other things in the right perspective. Now, please hear me. Every single Christian gets this wrong. Um, and when you get it wrong, it's called idolatry. It's, it's putting ultimate worth in the wrong things. But the more that we understand who God is and the more that we say sorry for finding ultimate worth and value in the wrong things, the more we see that we get forgiveness from him and relocate our hearts back in him, the more we're liberated to then enjoy our gifts and to take them as good things, to be able to say, you know, that really hard phrase, and you can pick it up when people can say it, you know, authentically to say, yeah, I'm good at that, but it doesn't define me right? It's so hard because even when you say I'm good at that, you know, you feel the ego kick in. But what would it be like to say that with no ego, just to say, yeah, I'm good at that, but it's a gift. And therefore, it's lovely to be good at it, but it doesn't define me. My favorite film is Chariots of Fire, and in it, Eric Liddell famously says, I'm fast. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I'd love you to so know God and so rejoice in your gifts that you feel pleasure in them, but they don't define you. How liberating would that be? So, yeah, that's something to say on that. Um, does Christianity profess to have an answer to the meaning of life, mm -hmm. or is faith in the not knowing and that being okay what it's all about? Thank you. Well, look, I think faith in, or maybe initially a starting point of searching or not knowing is a really good starting place. Um, Isaiah Berlin, I mentioned this last night, I think. Um, not from the front, actually, in a conversation with someone. The philosopher Isaiah Berlin just said, philosophers are just um, children who were good at asking questions who grew up, or approximate to that. In other words, he just said, Look, children are great. They ask the why question, you know, and bad parents kind of say, don't ask, don't ask. Good parents stimulate and encourage that curiosity. Well, I, I hope you haven't lost that curiosity. And actually, there's a, there's a whole genre, particularly the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, which is about asking questions probing and saying, why? Why does it work like this? And will it satisfy me? And what about this? But, but that's not the end point. The contemplative life is important, but it's not the end point. You can't stay there with no answers. You need to keep asking questions, but ultimately to, to come to know God. And so, yeah, John 17 verse 3 um, is, you know, is a place where it explicitly teaches on what the meaning of life is, um, where Jesus says, this is life, um, that you know your Father in heaven. Let me find it. John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, or this is life, that they know you, 
God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, it's translated eternal life there, but the word in Greek is just zoe, and it means zoe is different to bios. Bios means surviving. It's like the stuff that keeps you alive. Zoe is like, this is the life. This is what it's about. This is really living. And he says, this is what life is all about. In other words, here's the meaning of life, right? So note it down. John 17, verse 3 gives you the answer. And it's not a number, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay? It is this, that they know you as a Father in heaven, as we were saying, and to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, it's relationship and it's relationship with God. That's the meaning of life. No secret, open secret in that sense, um, but being attentive to that and living that out is, um, is a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. So, um, how do I know what is God's perfect will for my life? I believe that one of the answer is sharing the gospel. Any other thoughts? <laughs> Great question. How do I know what God's will is? Well, look, sometimes when we talk about God's will, there can be some ambiguity about what we mean. Do we mean, like, how many, you know, whether I'm going to get married or not, and what job I'm going to do, and how many kids or not I'm going to have, like God's will in terms of the will about how things are going to work out, or do we mean God's will is in how he wants me to live? And the Bible does talk about both as areas or spheres of God's will. Um, sometimes it talks about God's decreed will, that is the, the, the way he wants you to live, and God's sovereign will, which is how things are going to work out. First thing is to say the Bible is far more concerned with his decreed will than his sovereign will, whereas I think we're far more concerned with his sovereign will than his decreed will. We're constantly thinking circumstances, circumstances. What, what are my life circumstances going to be? And God's constantly saying character, character. I'm more concerned with your character and who you are and how you're living. And in terms of his decreed will, Jesus wonderfully boils it down to two things for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Know God, love him, be in a relationship with him, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, there's loads more that can be said as you unpack those two. The scripture says a lot, but that is what it's all about. And if you live that way, then there's a a realistic sense in which you can leave the sovereign will elements, like the circumstances, to God. Now, in terms of the circumstances, sometimes he gives you leanings, sometimes he gives you particular indications about where that's going to go. Um, But a lot of that is actually trusting him and walking with him and being faithful in the little things and then seeing where he leads. So, look, it's great to be sharing your faith, of course. That is part of loving your neighbor, because if you love your neighbor, you'll want to share the best news in the world with them. But there's loads more to it than that. But it's it's loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's really how he wants us to live. Mm. But working that out, by the way, is tough and a lifelong journey. Oh, yeah. So then what is the difference between don't worry, just trust God, and being lazy or irresponsible? (laughs) Yeah, good. That's a great question. Um, I guess there's a type of labor or work that comes from a drivenness, an anxious drivenness, a place of you're not settled, You, you can't sit still. You feel driven by maybe the burdens of expectations or maybe your own internal, you know, kind of drivenness. And it's not that it's wrong to have goals at all, actually. If you look at Christian history, some of the most motivated people are those who know Christ. Um, You can think of some of the figures that we celebrate, like William Wilberforce, for example, or Shaftesbury, and they achieved a huge amount in this world. So don't think that God's saying, you know, I love you, don't be anxious, you suddenly kind of become, I don't know, like jelly on the couch. 
And you're like, oh, that's okay. What am I, what am I, what am I striving for? In my experience, when I came to Christ, I had to go through a bit of a down and up in that I had to realize how many of my motivations were driven by kind of self-centered desire to achieve or to get ahead or things like that. And I had to kind of die to that. But then as I came out the other side, as I started realizing that because of what God has done for me, sending his son Jesus Christ to die for me and rising to new life and now empowering me by the Spirit, there's a world to, to, to get involved in, to get stuck in and to serve. And so it made me a, a, a keen to be an agent for God in the world. Um, so it doesn't make you lazy, um, but rather it, it gives you renewed motivations to live, which is not, you know, for this is now how I'm going to derive my meaning by what I do. Instead, it's God has given me meaning, but now he's also given me gifts and a calling to serve him. So now off I go and serve him. And that's liberating. Um, but yeah, hopefully if it's done right, it won't be kind of don't wrestle, nestle. Um, as this bumper sticker, Christian bumper sticker once put it. Um, instead, it'll be God-centered effort. Kind of leading on from there, to trust the Holy Spirit that lives within, we are guided by God even when we know it's the right thing to do. Why do we wrestle? Why do we wrestle? Let me read that. Yeah. To trust the Holy Spirit that lives within, we are guided by God even when we know it's the right thing to do. Why do we wrestle? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and again, like the, the first book I ever read when I became a Christian was called The Fight. Um, it was an old book. Um, and there is a sense in which the Christian life, there is a, a right striving and there's a wrong striving. And I think this is one of the things I'm trying to um, get across, um, maybe, is that, yes, once you trust the Holy Spirit and you come to know his work in your life, it doesn't mean you stop fighting and it doesn't mean you stop striving, but it means that you, you, you fight and strive in a very different way. So you don't do it in man-centered effort. Instead, you do it, it's the fight and the strife to remain in Christ and to not do it in your own strength, but to do it in God's strength. And that's a daily battle because your flesh rise up every day and says, do it in your own strength. You've got this, Pete. You can do it. You've done it before. Just go and do that thing you did before. But you have to say, no, no, no. Like, I need to trust God for this. I need to be doing, I need to be working and laboring in his strength and the power of the Spirit. Um, and then there's the, the fight with temptation and sin, you know, that says, you know, rather than loving neighbor as yourself, that's hard to do. Just you do you, Pete, just for today, just do you. It's been a tough week. You do you, don't worry about Rebecca and the kids. They've been, you know, the kids have been difficult this week. Just be selfish for a bit, it's okay. Have some you time. And you have to say, no, 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 no. When I feel tired, it's precisely when I need to love my wife, who's probably more tired than me, and care for my kids and be patient with them. And they're just tired at the end of a long week as well. And so you renounce yourself and you say, I'm gonna serve them. Mm. And the motivation, because God has served me. So if he served me, I can serve others. Right, so there is a wrestle, there is a fighting, but there's a wrong wrestling and a right wrestling, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Great. Thank you. Great question. Yeah. Um, a few practical ones. How do we use our gifts and work hard without basing our identity on what we do or achieve? How do we use our gifts and work hard? Um, I think, I mean, first of all, work out what you are gifted for, and if you're not sure, then talk to people around you. And in my experience, often our gifts are aligned with our passions as well. Um, the, some of the group of Christians in the 17th century called the Puritans, they used to talk about two callings, the call to follow Christ, which is for everybody, and then a particular calling, which is, you know, you using all that you have and all that you are and all that you're gifted with in the service of Christ. And that will look different for me 
as it will look for you, honey, as it will look for you. So my wife is a surgeon because she's gifted for that and she likes doing that. And so the call of Christ on her is to serve God with her gifts in that area, but also as a mum, but also in church, in different spheres of life. And so she has different gifts to me. So I think part of it is, is working out what those gifts are and serving God in that, but always being attentive to my gifts don't define me. They're gifts given by God, but they don't define me. They don't, they're not my source of ultimate value and worth. But I think as a church, we want to be a place where we encourage people to release their gifts in the service of God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last question? Last question. Last question. There are more yeah. questions, but yeah. Let me say, ask Pete at the end of the service and we'll continue on. Um, last question. Do you have practical advice on how to stop during the distractions that life throw at us? Ah, how to stop and deal with distractions. <laughs> Look, I think there's a really important principle in Scripture. It's called the Sabbath. Um, and the Sabbath was intended for at least two things. The Sabbath day was intended to be a place when you put down your tools and you stopped working. But that wasn't the end goal. The end goal was you stopped working so that you could spend time specifically focused on God and His people. It's some um, recreation. That's where we get the word recreation from, by the way. Recreation doesn't mean just like leisure, <laughs> though that's lovely. It means you stop working, enjoy leisure in order to refocus on community and on God. And the Sabbath principle, of course, of one day a week is really helpful, but I, I wonder if you can apply it to distraction of technology. Why not set up Sabbath rests from technology in your life? Um, you know, the, the one-seventh principle is quite a helpful one, right? Why not one day a week, maybe, like for the majority of that day, like turn your device off. You will survive. <laughs> you know, like you can put an out of office notification on, you'll be okay, right? Why not set up Sabbath pit stops or rests as well from distraction in terms of like the simple thing of having a meal together? I guarantee that the meal will be a lot better if you turn your devices off. And just let me just give you a, a brief anecdote um, of. of we know that our devices, by the way, and I know I'm talking about devices, I'm focusing on those. We know our devices are more addictive, by the way, than cigarettes, right? We know that. Silicon Valley is that good at harnessing your attention. There's that much money at stake. They are that good. And by the way, all the Silicon Valley top execs send their children to schools where, guess what? There's no device policy on site. So you've got to ask you, what do they know that you don't know? They know how addictive they are. Roll back 20, 30 years when cigarettes were widespread and you'd walk into a restaurant or a pub and people would just be smoking, right? And if then you'd gone around someone's house and they'd said to you, lovely that you're here, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, thank you so much for coming. Would you mind not smoking in the house? Back then you would have gone, what? Have you been to the Nicholas's? They don't allow smoking. They're absolute crazy. They're nutters. They ask you to check your packet of cigarettes in at the door. What is wrong with them? Right now, if you came around to our house and you started smoking, I mean, it would just be an absolute no-no. Given how addictive devices are, do you not think that in 20 or 30 years we might be in a similar situation where the generation after us will go, do you know what? They used to allow phones in people's houses around mealtime. Can you believe that? I mean, given how addictive those things are, they gave them to little children. They gave them to children. Imagine giving a cigarette to a little child, the damage it's doing. But we know the damage it can do to your brain. So here's the thing. I just say that to be provocative. Okay, and would love a conversation with you afterwards, and I've written a book that no one's read called Virtually Human, um, <laughs> that you can find out more about it. But I just throw that out there, which is if our devices are that addictive, which they are, by the way, then 
is it not slightly odd if we don't put restrictions in place, if we don't create times and spaces when we actually have them off? And if that is such a terrifying thought to you, then isn't that maybe you being the cigarette addict saying, don't take them away, give them back quick, right? So Sabbath rest from your devices, easing that distraction. And it's amazing how attentive you can become in those moments when it's all turned off. And you know that it's not buzzing in your pocket, and that feeling in your pocket is just your muscles lying to you. <laughs> and actually, you can just pause and think, I'm free to think. I'm free to talk and relate. And, and it makes you more attentive. So why not create Sabbath principles in your life regarding distraction?